What does the Bible teach about dreams? If God still speaks through dreams, how do we discern when a dream is truly from God? In other words, what are we supposed to do with dreams according to scripture? Obviously, not every dream is from God, and not every dream has real significance or a hidden message behind it. But there is a lot of wisdom we can draw from scripture when it comes to receiving and discerning through the dreams we think are from God. There's even a lot of wisdom that scripture offers when it comes to interpreting dreams from God. So today we're talking all about how God speaks through dreams and what the Bible actually says about dreams that are from God. This is episode nine of Hearing God's Voice, all about dreams. And um, some of you are looking for a blueprint and a strategy guide for how to interpret dreams. Give me just, you know, a chart with all the symbols and all the objects that represent deeper ideas and give me the metaphors so that when I see that in my dream, I know what they mean. Uh, One thing I want to say up front is this will not be a blueprint for interpreting dreams, discerning dreams, as much as you may want that with all the symbols and typology. Instead, what we're going to do is glean wisdom and do a flyby of all the passages that have to do with dreams. The first thing to make clear, and I have a bunch of passages to go through with this. I'm not necessarily going to touch on all of these in this session, but I'm going to give you some homework. Um, Throughout scripture, when you see this idea of night visions or visions of the night, I never realized this, but those are referring to dreams. Genesis 46.2, Job 4.13, Job 33.15. And again, if you want to watch this on rebroadcast later tonight, or you want to rewind this, watch it in slow motion, or listen to it it's slower so you can catch the passages. Um, but Isaiah 29.7, Daniel 2.19, uh, Daniel 7, verse 7 and 13, Zechariah 1, 8, and Acts 16, 9. All of these passages refer to dreams as night visions or visions in the night or sometimes visions of the night. So I'm not going to make any absolute statements about dreams today. I'm not going to say anything that always absolutely certainly happens when it comes to interpreting dreams, receiving dreams, making sense of whether God is speaking to us in a dream. That's not what I want to do. What I would love to do is give you wisdom helpful principles and and just direction when it comes to making sense of when God is speaking through um, our dreams and if he is, all right? So one thing I really paid attention to as I was scouring the scriptures the last couple of days um, is I noticed one thing that I really want to put up front, then we're going to do a flyby of all the passages. And I want to make this clear up front. Every dream I found in scripture has, when God is speaking through a dream, there is a purpose. And you go, duh, there's obviously a purpose if God is speaking through a dream. But hold on. The question becomes not just what is the purpose, but what is God doing slash giving to the person here in this situation when he's giving a dream? What is God doing or what is God giving that person? That you can always answer that question when it comes to a dream. Now you go, obviously, duh. But the second thing you need to understand is the purpose of the dream is always, every time I've, I've found a dream in scripture, it is always related to the timing of that person's life and the circumstances that they're currently in. And you go, a double duh. And hold on, this is what I mean. Every dream from God has a purpose that relates to the situation the, the person is in. So the timing of the dream, when it happens, when God speaks, actually gives us a lot of clarity when it comes to what he's doing why he's giving it in, in, in a dream, and what he's saying to that person. So, for instance, some common purposes that you'll see in every single dream that God gives, whether Abraham, Abimelech, you know, uh, the list goes on and on. I can't think right now. Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh, Joseph, Jacob. There we go. Now the list is kicking in. In every single dream, the purpose is often 
is always rather, the purpose is always going to be to give one of these things. And I really want you to think through this. You can test me on this. Go and read every passage in scripture about dreams. Every time God gives a dream, the purpose is to give one of these things, either warning, wisdom, direction and instruction, encouragement, or insight. Those are the five things that I noticed in every single dream God gives in scripture or speaks through. He gives wisdom, he gives a warning, he gives direction, he gives encouragement, or he's giving insight. And sometimes it's a combination of those things. And what you need to know about the timing of these of these dreams, like Pilate's wife, like Nebuchadnezzar, like Pharaoh, like Jacob, like Abraham, like Abimelech, like Daniel, every single time. And you can, again, go test me on this. Go read for yourself. I found out, and this doesn't mean that what all these dreams have in common gives us an absolute application for our life, but it does start to help you build out a clearer biblical theology of dreams. And the timing of every dream that God gives and God speaks through, the timing is that God brings a dream in a time of crisis or a time of transition for an individual. I want to say that again. Every time I found a dream in scripture and go read for yourself, whether it's the baker or the cupbearer, or the list goes on and on. Solomon, uh, the wise men, Paul's dream in Acts, it always is in a time of crisis or to mark a transition. So God is either giving aid through a dream in a time of crisis, number one, or number two, it's marking a transition for that individual person's life. And I want you to really think through that and, and look for that as we just do a flyby summary of all these scriptures. I'm not, we're not going to dive into the context and what's the backstory and what's going on before this and after. I did that on Monday. I made a mistake. We sat too long in the text and we got lost in the weeds. That is my fault. We're not going to do that. What I'm going to do instead is I'm going to be releasing over the next several weeks, maybe a couple months, um, I'm going to do Bible study walkthroughs individually of every occurrence a dream happens. So for instance, the next video I'm going to be releasing, the next Bible study walkthrough is going to be on Genesis 15, where God makes a covenant with Abraham and there's a dream involved in that and God goes to sleep. So what you need to understand is I'm not going to be diving deep into those today. You can just look for those over the next few weeks. Those videos will be releasing and I'm going to spend the necessary time on each of those stories there's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 general occurrences or characters that have dreams in scripture that I'm going to touch on. So there's going to be 18 videos that will be released, roughly 30, 40 minutes. Imagine trying to cram that into a live stream. That's not helpful. Okay. So I established there's purpose, there's timing, times of crisis, times of transition. God gives aid, warning, wisdom, direction, encouragement, insight, common purposes, right? purpose and, and timing matter very much to interpreting and discerning a dream is actually from God. The second thing I want to show you is that, well, there are two passages about clear ap uh, purposes for which God gives dreams. Meaning this, in Numbers twelve six, God says, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make himself, make myself known to him in a vision I speak with him in a dream. So when God speaks to a prophet, 
whether that comes through vision, whether that comes through face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth like Moses, whether that comes through a dream, we know for certain that the main core purpose, the underlying purpose of every dream or vision or prophetic word is that God is revealing himself. God will always reveal himself. When he speaks, he's revealing more of his character, more of his glory, more of his greatness, more of his compassion, more of his mercy, more of the fact that he's a shield and a strong tower to you in times of trouble. God is revealing himself when he speaks, okay? So we can say for certain that is why God speaks through dreams is to at least, the bare minimum, is to reveal himself. Job 33, God speaks in one way, in two, though man doesn't perceive it, in a dream, in a vision of the night. When deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, why does God do this? Well, he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings. This is not just a shock effect. This is to warn people so that they would turn aside from their deeds so that God would conceal pride from a man and keep his soul back from the pit, his life from the perishing, from perishing by the sword. In other words, what we see in Scripture are these two clear statements. At least, typically, with a dream, God is always revealing himself in a dream. Second thing, there are times where the dream is warning, cautioning, preventing sin or bad decisions when the person is awake. All right? Now we get to do a flyby of dreams in Scripture. And I'm going to touch on the passages we went through on Monday. But in no way are we staying in there as long as we did. That was just a bad decision on my part. Um, I love going deep, but there are times where you need to um, not spend so much time. All right, uh, Abraham's dream is the first one. Uh, We'll see in Genesis 15. God makes a covenant here. I just want to look at what the dream is about. The sun is going down. A deep sleep falls on Abraham, right? Behold, dreadful great darkness fell upon him, and the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, um, and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they'll come out with great possessions. Uh, I can't wait till this video releases. Again, each of these passages we're looking at, I'm going to do a deeper, thorough study, roughly 30 to 40 minutes, Bible study walkthrough of each of these occurrences they'll be releasing over the next few weeks. So be on the lookout for that. Make sure you hit the bell so you get notified. Um, And God is saying he's going to judge Egypt. He doesn't say explicitly it's Egypt. And he goes, Abraham, as for you, uh, you're going to go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried in a good old age. So it's like, why, why are you telling me this then? And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So we see in Genesis 15, um, God is giving a promise for good, for good uh, things. God is giving hope. Um, God is promising judgment and affliction upon the wicked nations. Um, God is ratifying a covenant with Abram through this dream, um, answering Abram's question, how will I inherit this land? How will my descendants, you know, actually occupy the land? God explains through this dream. Um, God is also giving a warning and a heads up and a sort of caution uh, for his descendants, all right? So that's what we see in Genesis 15. What you're going to see is for, for this moment, This marks a transitional period for Abram in his life. So, like I said, what God is giving here is encouragement, future insight. And the third thing you might say is he's giving a warning, not just for the people that will come through Abram and what they have to face, but I think, and I'll explain this in future videos, that um, God is actually warning Abram to not be a, 
essentially be a pharaoh himself and be oppressive and abusive and enslave and, and take advantage and scheme and use people for his own profit. In the next story, he's going to use Hagar for those purposes. So it makes sense. Um, Abimelech, Genesis chapter 20. And again, I want you to be paying attention in these stories. When God uh, is, is speaking through a dream, giving a dream, the question becomes, do I see this character in a, in a time of crisis? Like Abram's questioning, he's anxious, he's concerned. He's going, Eliezer's going to inherit everything I have. I don't have a son. Where are you, God? How are we going to inherit this land? And boom, here comes God establishing and solidifying a covenant, encouraging Abram, speaking through a dream. You know, so be paying attention to that. Do we see crisis or do we see a time of transition for these characters receiving a dream? And then be paying attention to what is God giving? What is God giving? Okay. Is he giving warning, instruction, encouragement? This will help us really understand how God speaks through dreams and uses them. Genesis 20, God comes to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. Abimelech has taken Abram's wife. Abimelech's innocent in this, though, because as the king, he heard that Sarah, Abram's wife, is just his sister. So Abimelech's just taking her in, making making her one of his own. And then God comes to Abimelech in a dream and says, you are a dead man because the woman you've taken, she's a man's wife. Now, Abimelech had not yet approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Didn't Abram himself tell me she's my sister? And she even said, yeah, he's my brother. Come on. In the integrity of my heart and the innocent of my hands, I've done this. Then God said in the dream, yeah, I know. That's why I've kept you from sinning against me. I know the integrity of your heart. I love this about God. He's so gracious. Therefore, I didn't let you touch her. Remember Job 33? He keeps man from sinning, warns them in dreams so they don't sin when they're awake. He keeps them from pride. and Therefore, I didn't let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he's a prophet. He will pray for you and you shall live. But if you don't return her, know that you'll surely die, you and all who are yours. Now you go, I don't see Abimelech here in crisis or transition. Actually, if you keep reading, Abimelech, his household, and his wife have all been struck with a kind of either sickness, plague, uh, at least infertility on the part of the women. Um, and, and that's happening in this narrative. And then what happens is Abram prays and God takes that away. And it says that Abimelech and his wife and his household are all healed. So this has this plague has essentially come on uh, the Philistines and the household of Abimelech because of Abram lying and, and cheating and and really trying to really preserve himself. Um, not a great decision. And I'm going to dive deeper into that in future videos, just not now. But know this, that yeah, Abimelech is actually in a period of crisis. Um, we actually see that God will make sense of why sickness and why infertility has come upon his household. Um, it seems as though this doesn't just happen the night of, um, but some time has passed enough for Abimelech to recognize. I'll show you right here, actually. Um, then Abram prayed to God, God healed Abimelech and his wife and female slaves for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah. We don't know how long, we don't know how long, uh, how much time had transpired between Abimelech grabbing Sarah and then, uh, God giving him a dream. This could have been a few days, who knows? Um, but we know that God has closed the wombs prior to the dream and I'm sure, um, we can speculate at least. There might have been some hint of that on the part of Abimelech because 
that God comes in a dream and warns him. And so it makes sense. God makes sense of what's going on and why. Um, God here in this passage is giving Abimelech warning that if you don't, you will die in your household. So this is not just infertility. This, whatever has come upon them, it would have led to death. Um, or at least God would have brought something that would have resulted in death. And then God gives clear direction and instruction for Abimelech in this passage. All right, let's jump to Jacob. Jacob in Genesis 31 or 28, 28. Jacob has just lied and schemed his way into the blessing and birthright. He's cheated Esau. Esau hates him. Jacob is now fleeing from his house and his brother who wants to murder him just like Cain killed Abel. It's not good. And his mama goes, you should go back to my family and just lay low until your brother doesn't want to kill you anymore because it's weird right now. So let's get out of here, Jacob. Jacob runs away to a place he's never been all by himself. He's isolated, cut off, confused. He caused this himself. It's the, it's his own decision that made this happen. But in the midst of this lying and scheming and deceiving, God meets Jacob in verse t- uh, 10. Uh, Jacob left Beersheba, went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place He stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones, he put under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder and set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. This is the first time we see an object be representative of something. This is symbolic of something else. The ladder is not just a ladder, literally, but what Jacob is seeing represents something metaphorically. In other words, there's a set of ideas that this ladder represents. There's a deeper message behind the ladder. This doesn't mean that every dream has objects or images that represent deeper things because we saw with Abimelech and Abram, God just kind of spoke clearly without riddles, without images, without metaphorical pictures, without these symbolic ideas. But sometimes dreams do have that. So there is a category for some dreams do have that. Not always, okay? I know you're looking for like a, just give me a blueprint of what dreams will always be like. There is no such thing. God works how he wants, when he wants, and uses what he wants. And the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Jesus will actually reference this in John's gospel when he says, you will see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Essentially what he's saying is, I am the unification of heaven and earth. I am heaven come to earth. I am God in the flesh, and I am the only way back to the Father. Angels ascend and descend on me, and you only get to the Father through me. There's a lot packed into that. Verse 13, And the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. So now God is making, almost like extending the covenant of Abraham clearly to Jacob in this dream and saying, Jacob, you are a part of the blessing and the covenant as well. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, the north, and the south. And in you and your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Jacob, I'm going to use you and your descendants to bless the whole world. Why would God do that? Jacob's a liar. Jacob's a deceiver. Jacob only has himself in mind. Why is God choosing to work through a man like this? Well, because God is gracious and he can. And he goes, behold, I'm with you and I will keep you wherever you go. Because there's a lot of fear Jacob's experiencing. Is Esau going to kill me? Will he find me? Um, If he doesn't, then will other people find me? I'm out here all alone, exposed to the elements, exposed to the vicious animals, exposed to robbers and people who just want to take my life. And Jacob is in a period of crisis, is what he's in. 
um, really confused. He's older. He's definitely not like a, a lad, a young lad. Um, and then he's going to find himself at Laban's household and find himself a couple wives. Things get even weirder. And Jacob woke up from his sleep and goes, whoa, the Lord is in this place. That's what the ladder represents. The ladder represents the fact that if earth and heaven are connected by this ladder, it just is symbolic of the fact that God is here. This is a, I don't know, um, a bridge between heaven and earth. This place is sacred because God is here. And so he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So, you know, in scripture, sometimes whenever there's an image or a symbol, um, either somehow scripture will clarify what those symbols or images mean. In this case, it's representative of this being the house of God, a holy place, the gate of heaven. That's why we see a ladder. And so what we can say about dreams is that, again, dreams don't always carry this symbolic messaging or these images that represent deeper things. Sometimes it is just a clear God is telling you not to do something or he's telling you to do something or he's encouraging you if, in fact, God is even speaking through that dream to you. That's what you have to determine first. So what we see here is, yes, Jacob is in crisis, but also there's somewhat of a transition here. Uh, This doesn't just mark a transition in Jacob's life, but in the covenantal family of Abraham in general. This marks a transition in Israel's history, meaning Abraham, God is working with him. Abraham's gone. Isaac, God's working through him. Isaac's slowly fading out of the picture. And now the narrative shifts to, to Jacob. It's as if there's a transition between God is what's working through Isaac. It doesn't mean he's not anymore, but more of his focus is now on Jacob. If you can say such a thing, not that God has divided attention. But the idea is that God is working mainly and primarily with Jacob here. So it marks a transition, not just in Jacob's life as the new uh, patriarch, as the new, you know, covenant holder, as the new descendant that's got, that's taken over for Abraham and carrying the torch. But this also, you're going to see is God is giving encouragement to Jacob in this passage. God is giving future insight, um, and saying, here's what I will do. I won't leave you until I've brought you back here. I promise you, your, your descendants will have land. They'll be numerous. So we jump to, um, well, let's go to Laban. Actually, before Laban, we have, um, uh, where are my passages? Genesis 30, 31, 31, okay. Genesis 31, God gives a dream to Jacob. Uh, Laban is cheating Jacob of his wages and, and lying and making a way for him to not get what he deserves, and including women. And Jacob wanted Rachel. And then he wakes up next to weak-eyed Leah, whatever that means. It means she's very good at other things. <laughs> Genesis 31, um, 10 through 11. This is what Jacob says as he's leaving and running away from Laban and his uh, lying, cheating self. In the breeding season, this is Jacob recalling the dream. Uh, in the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes And I saw in a dream the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob. And I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and look. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. I've seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel. 
where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah go, well, we got nothing here, so we're with you, buddy. I mean, you are our husband, our husband, it's kind of weird. And Jacob explains the fact that he has had his, his flocks multiply because God gave him some unique insight in the dream just about how to not get cheated by Laban, how to make sure Jacob's flock continued to grow and multiply and God blesses him. So in this dream, God reassures Jacob he's with him, he's for him, he's blessed him. Um, he gives him divine insight into how livestock works. And and also, um, there is a call and instruction to go. So up to this point, Jacob has spent 14 years at least with Laban. And uh, you can you can probably tell he's he's grown tired and frustrated and exhausted uh tired of getting cheated out of his wages tired of being oppressed tired of being taken advantage of and then god intervenes in this dream and encourages provides wisdom provides even future insight and also gives instruction in this time of crisis for jacob where he's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place if he goes back home esau's waiting with a sword waiting with a shotgun if he stays here Laban and his sons will probably kill him off eventually and take all that he's made. And and he's just in a very rough place. He's in what you call a crisis. He's desperate for help. And God intervenes and gives wisdom through a dream. But also God gives direction and tells Jacob where to go and what to do in this dream. And the underlying question in all of these dreams becomes, why does God choose to use a dream to relay this information? Why? Well, of all the things God could say, first of all, second of all, why does he choose to deliver that in a dream? If he can talk face to face, if he can bring, if the angel of the Lord can show up and give a message, if God can give some like divine, nat, nat, supernatural experience outside of a dream or, or show up, then why doesn't he? Why does he use a dream here? And in all these situations, <clears throat> maybe we'll be able to answer that after looking at all these Genesis 31, 24, just by um, going down a bit, Laban himself has a dream. Jacob's on the run. He's going back home. Laban's chasing him because, I mean, Jacob did take his daughters and all his stuff. Well, he thinks is his stuff. And God comes to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night. And he says, Laban, mm-mm, <laughs> be careful. Not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. In other words, this is God looking out for the well-being of Jacob, protecting Jacob, standing in for Jacob and defending him. Laban, you better watch yourself. Laban himself is in what you might call a crisis. Jacob left without saying anything. He lost part of his labor force. He lost his daughters. He lost a lot of his livestock that was supposedly his and Jacob took, but it actually rightfully belonged to Jacob. And Laban is in hot pursuit. This is a a frustrated, um, confused man. And here we have him in the middle of his crisis. God meets him. And what does God give him? A warning. A warning. So we saw a warning with Abimelech. We, see a, we saw a warning potentially underlying with Abram. We see a warning here. And we're going to jump to Genesis with Joseph now. Genesis um, chapter 37. Okay, Joseph has two dreams. And remember, um, Jacob here is the first character to have a dream 
where an object or uh, an image represents a deeper thing, has a deeper meaning to it, is symbolic of something. Genesis 37, Joseph, Jacob's favorite son, has a dream and has a rainbow coat and has the favor of his father. This guy's stacked. This guy's stacked. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said, here's the dream I dreamed. We were binding sheaves in the field, think standing grain, and behold, my sheaf, my grain, stood up. Oh, and behold, your grains gathered around it and bowed down to my grain. Ha! His brother said, are you out of your mind? Are you going to reign over us? You, are you going to rule us? You really think that's going to happen? How did, why do they think that's what he's saying? That's my question. Why do they think that's what Joseph's saying? How do they know that's what it implies? There's something odd going on here. Maybe some details are left out, but enough for us to actually follow the narrative through. But I do have some questions. Are they, how do they know this dream represents Joseph being bowed down to by them? Why can't it be something else? Why do the sheaves have to represent them? Why does the grain have to represent people? Which again, here's another example of um, images and objects carrying symbolic meaning. And they understand the ideas of the grain bowing down you're telling us we're going to bow down to you? Actually, we do see this happen. They are going to come and bow down to him when they're asking the second in command of Egypt for some grain, and that's going to be Joseph. So they hated him even more. And then we have another dream Joseph has, and he told it to his brothers, and he said, I have another dream. The sun, the moon, 11 stars, they were bowing down to me. So the first dream was like earthly rule. Now we have cosmic rule. When he told it to his father and his brothers, his, father's rebu- his father rebuked him, not father's. And he said, what is this dream you've dreamed? Are you saying me and your mother and brothers are going to come bow down to you on the ground? And his brothers were jealous, but his father kept the saying in mind. In other words, his father also is catching wind of what Joseph's dreaming. What's interesting about these dreams is they're not said to directly be from God. That doesn't mean they're not. But it's interesting that it's not explicitly stated. God gave a dream. God spoke to Joseph in a dream. Joseph just says, I had a dream. First dream, your wheat bowed down to mine. Second dream, we were all like stars and planets and and you bowed down to me and I was standing there and cosmic rule pointing to Jesus mainly. But the idea here is that apparently there's divine, there's a divine element to what's happening in these dreams now. And Jacob, Joseph's dad is catching wind of that and going, huh? So he keeps these things in mind. And I think that is a good application point for us when it comes to dreams is I don't rely on dreams. Actually, there's a warning to not rely on dreams. Also, uh, it's a warning against relying on dreams, so don't do that. But there is the other extreme where you almost despise, in the same way you despise prophecy, you despise dreams, and almost like, I guess, decide in your own thinking that God will never speak to me through a dream, and then you cut that avenue off. And I say, don't do that. But actually, if there's any sense within a dream you have the night before, at least keep them in mind, consider it, meditate on it, bring it before the Lord, pray through it. I think there's a healthy balance between accepting everything as fact and believing every dream is a message from God and then just looking at every dream with contempt. There's a balance. I don't want to do either of those. What I want to do is find middle ground and say, well, I want to be considerate. I want to meditate. I want to think through this. I want to pray through this. I want to get other people's counsel on this. If a dream resonates with you and hits you a little different, at least consider it. But I don't want to just assume God's speaking to me 
But I also don't want to disregard it and go, God's not speaking to me. Consider it. Be thoughtful. Pray, pray through it. Uh, Genesis 40, uh, verse 5 through 17. We have the cupbearer. So n- notice, I said this last time. I want to state it again. Okay? I want to state this again. In Joseph's story, there's an interesting set of twos. Meaning, there's three dreams and they're all pairs. Joseph has a set of dreams. He has a pair of dreams. The cup baker and uh, cup bearer and the baker in prison, they have dreams. So there's a set of two. Pharaoh himself will have two dreams that mean the same thing. And so it's interesting that here I, I just want to notice it. I'm not making any absolute statements or application for your life. I'm just saying when we read the text and we notice patterns, especially when it's this prevalent, and I notice Joseph has two dreams about the same thing. Pharaoh is going to have two dreams about the same thing, right? The hungry cows are eaten by the, or the the small cows eat the big cows, and then the small grain eats the big grain. And then the cupbearer and the the baker, they have essentially the same kind of dream, but one is positive, one is negative. Again, I just want to pay attention to that. That doesn't mean that when I have a dream, when I have a sequence of dreams, I now absolutely say God is speaking, but it just might cause me to consider this might be more likely God speaking to me when I have a set of dreams, a couple dreams that carry the same, I guess, weight to it, or I sense the same kind of uh, intensity to it, or maybe I have the same dream twice, just something to consider. I'm not making any absolute statements. I'm saying consider that pay more attention to that than you would a single standalone dream something to think about because in genesis 40 we have joseph's in prison things have gone wrong uh god is going to elevate joseph by giving the cupbearer and the baker dreams that he'll interpret and here you know we don't have to read the dreams because there's a lot more dreams to get through but the cupbearer, I think it's the cupbearer who gets restored to his position three days from his dream. And I, I guess it's helpful to read it because all of these dreams have a few images I want to unpack real quick. The chief cupbearer, so I re- retract that. The chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said, in my dream there was a vine. On the vine there were three branches, right? So sometimes, like we see in Joseph's dream, the fact that there were 11 stars, a sun and a moon, the numbers represented a deeper reality. We call this numerology in scripture. Like certain numbers in scripture carry symbolic deeper meaning and a set of ideas. Like the number 40 symbolically used of testing. Um, The number uh, 10 and 7, the number 3, the number 6, the number 12. um, Numbers in scripture, certain numbers, carry deeper symbolic meaning. And I think in dreams, sometimes there is truth to that as well. So I want to maybe like give you an example. If I see a set of threes in my dreams or three something, three objects, three times something happens, that does not absolutely mean that whatever three means in scripture, that's what it means in my dream. But I do want to at least consider, consider the fact that three carries a symbolic meaning in scripture. Think about the resurrection. Think about Jonah in the belly three days. Think about Abram's trip to, to Mount Moriah three days. There's a lot of threes um, in the Old Testament specifically. 
And so I might want to explore that and go, what does three typically mean? But I don't assume that the three in my dream has symbolic meaning. I just want to explore that and consider that. I want you guys to be thoughtful. Biblically consider your dreams and don't assume. Don't make absolute statements and assume your way into some terrible decisions. Just like we say ideas um, or objects and, and images can be representative of a deeper set of ideas, so can numbers. So we see that here. Three branches means three days. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes, pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. So while there is, that, that's what's interesting about these two sets or these two dreams as a pair is that both of these dreams have literal elements to them as well as metaphorical symbolic elements to it. And so I think sometimes in our dreams, we assume that it is either metaphorical or it's either literal, when actually sometimes it can be a combination, apparently, of the two. All we need is one example in Scripture of a dream looking a certain way to say that this is possible, meaning it doesn't mean it's guaranteed going to look like this for you, but it is possible that your dream could be a combination of literal elements where you see yourself doing something and that's literally what God is telling you to do, as well as metaphorical elements to it, where images and objects represent a deeper reality and, and it's a combination of the two. God can do that. Why? He says in uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, when he's talking, when he's defending Moses, he goes, I talk to Moses face to face, not in riddles, not in riddles like I do with prophets. Um, so apparently there is a category for riddles and dark sayings as well as clear face-to-face -face statements, kind of literal, um, where it's like, that's not hard to understand. So Pharaoh's cup is in his hand. Joseph goes, ah, three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, restore you. It'll be great. Ah, woohoo! But don't forget about me. The sad thing is the cupbearer does forget about him. Chief Baker goes, ooh, I like your interpretation. How about mine? I had a dream. Three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food. But the birds were eating out, eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph said, ooh. Mm. Three baskets are three days. And the chief baker's going, yeah. In three days, Pharaoh's going to lift up your head from you. All right, God bless. Have a good day. Well, that's the interpretation for the baker. Three days... You're not going to be restored to your position, but you saw your head and the baskets on it. Pharaoh's going to lift up your head and the birds are going to actually eat the flesh from you. And that actually ends up happening. Okay, so we see that in these two dreams, I didn't say this with Joseph's dream, so I want to backtrack. Remember, we're looking for the purpose within each dream and the timing. Are either of these characters in crisis? Are they in a, um, a season of transition, right? Um... And I think with Joseph, Joseph having the first two dreams in the beginning with his brothers, that was prophetic. God was giving him insight into the future. Though it wasn't clearly stated, though it doesn't say God was even in that giving him the interpretation, his family seems to agree on what the dreams mean, and they're kind of bothered by it. But that those two dreams actually marked a transition point for Joseph. Because where does Joseph go after dreaming those dreams and telling his brothers, he ends up going to Egypt. So his life is flipped upside down. 
as a result of telling his brothers those dreams that really pushes them over to the edge. Now, when it comes to the chief baker or the, the cupbearer and the baker, they're in a crisis themselves in prison with Joseph, wondering if they'll ever get out. And they have these two dreams. God meets them where they are and speaks to them in riddles, in, in images and in symbols about what they're wondering. Will they ever get out? Yeah, in three days, you'll be restored and you'll die. So for them, they are in a moment, they are in a time of crisis, sitting in prison wondering. And God actually gives encouragement to one and a warning to the other. Not a warning that he can change, but this is what's going to happen. Okay. And so both of them in, in crisis, one, they both get future insight. One is encouraging, the other one is not. Now with Pharaoh, we're going to see this dream he has, these two dreams he has, are marking a transition in Egypt's, um, I guess, for an Egypt's national timeline, where they're at as a nation. Here, I'll explain. Genesis 41. Um, the cupbearer goes, oh my gosh, Pharaoh, I forgot. I was supposed to tell you something. That's right. There was a Hebrew there. He can interpret dreams because Pharaoh had these couple dreams. They bothered him. No one could tell him what it means. Pharaoh calls Joseph and goes, I had a dream. There's no one can interpret it. And Joseph goes, well, only God can interpret dreams. Tell me what it means. Pharaoh said, well, in my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. On the Nile. Is there a deeper meaning behind the Nile? Or is it literally a dream about the Nile? Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile fed in the reed grass. This is symbolic of abundance. Seven other cows came up after them, poor, very ugly and thin, such as I'd never seen in all the land of Egypt. He's repulsed. And the thin, ugly cows ate the plump cows, the seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have even known they'd eaten them. They were still as ugly as at the beginning. And then I woke up. That's a weird dream. That's a weird dream. And the symbolic meaning of this dream is Joseph will tell him, you're going to have seven abundant years of grain, which I believe the Nile is representative of the water that actually nourishes and provides nutrients to all the plants and vegetation that's going to grow. You're going to have a very fruitful, abundant seven years. After that, famine. The polar opposite, famine. And so, the cows in these dreams represent years. Does that mean all throughout the Bible, cows represent years? No. Does that mean all throughout the Bible, grain represents people? No. In these instances, they do. So, it's just helpful to know what an object or a, an image means in a dream in one occurrence doesn't necessarily mean it will carry that same set of ideas in another context. Pharaoh has another dream. It's pretty much the exact same dream, but instead with ears of corn. Seven ears growing on stock, full and good. Uh, and then seven ears withered, thin, blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. I told it to the magicians. They, No one has any idea. Then Joseph said, hmm. The dreams of Pharaoh are one. So guess what? There is a category of. Just as Joseph had two dreams that were essentially the same thing, Pharaoh has two dreams that are essentially the same thing. Pay attention to sets of 
uh, a pair of dreams throughout your life. Pay attention to dreams that happen sequentially. Pay attention to a dream that might happen after another and they carry almost the same, almost seem to be like the same kind of dream. Just pay attention to it. Because there is a category for two dreams being one. And God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Joseph gives the interpretation and then he goes, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means it is fixed by God. Ooh, it's fixed by God. So, something to think about is if God doubles up a dream, it means he's doubling down for Pharaoh what he's put in place. It means there ain't no change in it. You can't pray it away. You can't fast it away. It's fixed. Does that mean that every time we have a set of dreams, that means God is doubling down and he's fixed the thing? Does that mean we make an absolute statement based on this single case that God giving you two dreams mean he's absolutely fixed something and and set it in stone and there's no changing it? Sometimes there might be, uh, that might be the case. But I can't say that is always the case. Okay? This is why I'm treading these waters very lightly because I don't want to give you the impression that I'm an expert in dreams and I can interpret and I've studied the science of the brain. All I know is what scripture has clearly stated about what happens in certain seasons of human history with certain characters. So for Pharaoh, this dream marks a transition. They're about to enter into seven abundant years. But it's also like a double transition. They're going to transition into seven years of famine. And what is God giving in this dream to Pharaoh? These two dreams. He's giving warning, take heed. He's giving future insight, right? And he's also, Joseph is going to provide direction that doesn't come explicitly from the dreams themselves. So notice, in every case so far, so far, the dreams we see have God's, there's purpose. It marks either a time of crisis or it's God intervening in a time of crisis and giving aid in times of crisis or it marks a transition in that person's life or for that nation's life. What I want to show you now is some dreams we haven't gotten to before. Let's start with Gideon. Okay. Gideon himself doesn't have these dreams. In Judges 7, Gideon is uh, he's kind of afraid. He just lost 90% of his already tiny army. He's going to war with the Midianites. They've combined with a couple other nations of the land. And they're coming against Gideon and the Israelite army. Why does that matter? Because what God is going to do here in the dreams for the Midianites that he gives, it's related to the fact that Gideon is terrified. He's in a time of crisis. He's just lost like all of his army, and they were already at an incredible disadvantage numerically. When you look at the numbers, the Midianites had them outnumbered exponentially. And then God goes, mm, your army's too big. What? Send them away? Yep. Twice. He whittles down the army to 300 men. So Gideon most definitely is in a time of crisis. Watch what happens. Um, Gideon's kind of scared and uh, that night the Lord said look go down against the camp and this is the context of the dream real quick I've given it into your hand but if you're afraid 
go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. I find this to be a fascinating tidbit in the story, is that God told him, go fight the camp, I've given it into your hand. So you and I would think Gideon would be disobeying if he didn't do it. God's not saying go down to the camp for any other reason except to go and obliterate them. I've given it into your hand, go and destroy the enemy. But if you're afraid and you go, hold on, whoa, back it up. You're telling me that God gave him another option. He said, I want you to go and destroy the Midianites. But if you're afraid, go down to the camp not to fight against them. But I want you to hear something. Just listen to what the Midianites are saying. Afterwards, your hand will be strengthened. So what Gideon is about to hear, he's going to overhear two Midianites talking about a dream. One has the dream, the other has the interpretation. And it's related to the fact that God is strengthening Gideon's hand to do what he told him. We often have this, I don't know, this false binary, I guess, in our minds where it's like either obey or disobey. And it's like in this situation, God told him, go fight the camp. And he goes, but if you're afraid, here's another option so that you end up having the strength to go and fight them. It's, it's, it's for me, like it just shows the grace and compassion and mercy and patience of God. So he goes down with Pura to the camp of the Midianites with like spies, right? They're not going down as warriors. They're going down as spies, the Midianites, the Amalekites. And then Gideon came and a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, I dreamed a dream. A cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp. Lay off the cake, buddy. Came into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so they lay flat. Now, hold on. If you had a dream, you're a warrior, okay? Your army just exponentially outnumbers Gideon's tiny army. I'm sure they had spies to go... Even if they don't know, you don't think you're at a disadvantage with the nation of Israel. And then you have a dream that night, right? Or your friend does. And a cake of barley tumbles in and you go, that is obviously the nation of Israel coming in and destroying our camp. How, why would you come to that conclusion? How do they know? <laughs> How do they know? Because look, the comrade answers. It doesn't mean the, the man who dreamed it doesn't have the interpretation. The other guy does. His comrade said, this is none other than the sword of Gideon. This? Yeah. A cake of barley bread in this specific situation represents the might, the strength, the power of Gideon, his sword, and his army. Because what does he say? This is none other than the Gideon in his sword. God has given it this camp into the hand um, of Gideon. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. So guess what is fascinating about this story? God uses this dream to warn the Midianites of their impending doom. God uses this dream to weaken their hands, discourage their hearts, and yet Gideon overhears it and God uses it to strengthen his hands and encourage Gideon in the midst of fear and anxiety in the middle of his crisis. His army just left. He's left with 300 bozos. He's reassuring Gideon that he is with him. And again, does this mean a cake of barley bread every time you dream it? It's talking about the Israelite army coming against you. <laughs> so I, I think we need to be very careful about how we 
interpret different symbols and images in our dream. But here's what I want you to see. What's happening here is pretty similar to the whole fleece situation of Gideon. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but essentially Gideon goes, God, I'm not really sure you're with me. Twice, God has to do a sign with a fleece to give Gideon assurance. This is essentially the third time that God has to clarify to Gideon and reassure him, I am with you. I'm with you, man. And what's interesting is that the Midianites actually understand the symbolism behind the cake of barley bread. So God meets Gideon in his doubt and fear. How? By telling him? No. By giving his enemy a dream and letting another one of his enemies supply the interpretation. This couldn't be more, there couldn't be more evidence for Gideon to know God is with him than for his enemy to have a dream and the other one of his enemies to go, clearly God is going to destroy this camp. If they're on the same page and God just told me, double whammy, let's do this thing. So the question becomes, why didn't God give Gideon the dream? Why did God give one of the Midianites a dream and not the interpretation and instead gave the interpretation to another? Just something to think about. So, in this passage, do we see Gideon in a time of crisis? We do. Um, this somewhat marks a transition in Israel as a nation um, in their history because this is going to give them victory over their enemies. It's going to give them rest for a number of years. This, is, this dream is going to s- symbolically represent and mark the transition God is bringing the nation into through Gideon's victory. And God is strengthening Gideon's hand in the midst of the crisis. He gives Gideon encouragement and he gives a warning to the Midianites. Okay. So in every situation so far, we have seen the dream. God speaks to a dream in every situation. It's either in a time of transition, a time of crisis, or both. And in every situation, God is giving one of five things. Warning, um, instruction, um, encouragement, uh, insight into the present or future. Um, And did I say wisdom, direction, instruction? One of those. So let's jump to Saul. God has left Saul and moved on to David in this situation. Saul's inquiring of God because he's going again up against a Philistine army that he knows he has no shot. He ain't got a shot. There's no Hail Mary for this battle. And so Saul is desperate. Desperate. Like, if you read the text, you read where Saul's head is, he is absolutely desperate for someone, something to give him the upper hand. He's so desperate, he's going to go to a witch to get help. The very witch that he kicked out of the land because God says, you shall not at all pay attention to those guys. Saul's going to intentionally and consciously, willingly sin to get the victory he wants. Philistines are assembled. Saul saw the army. He's terrified. His heart troubled greatly. Now watch. When Saul inquired of God, is Saul in a time of crisis and desperation? He absolutely is. The Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, hmm, or by Urim, or by prophets. 
Now you go, well, this doesn't mean God has ever done this. This doesn't mean God normally does this. Well, apparently Saul has a category in his mind that's based on previous experiences that says, when I'm in crisis and need help, I inquire of God three ways, either the prophet or dreams or by Urim. Now you go down to verse um, 15. Saul goes to the witch. She does something with to, to bring Samuel's spirit up. Samuel says to Saul, why did you disturb me? Saul says, I'm in great distress. I'm in, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, crisis. The Philistines and God has turned away from me. Watch. God no longer answers me by prophets or by dreams. What does this tell us? That as the king, God at least periodically... Not necessarily frequently, not a lot, but God periodically would answer Saul's inquiry and speak to Saul through the prophet or by dreams that he would give Saul or by dreams he'd give a prophet. So it's not a normative way of communication, but it is for Saul um, a, a way of communication that he's used to. And God is no longer answering by dreams or by prophets or by Urim. Okay, so let's go to... Um, I just want you to see this. This doesn't mean anything about your dreams, but I just want you to pay attention to this. That as the king, Saul needed advice and counsel. How did he get it? Well, he would go to God to inquire. How did God provide that? Through prophets. Prophetic aid. Through dreams. Through Urim. God is withholding dreams from Saul as a consequence for Saul's sin. God not answering Saul's in inquiries is actually punishment. And it's evidence God has turned away from Saul. No dreams, no direction, no clarity, no next steps, no prophetic aid. That is God withdrawing from Saul. Now, I only state that as an observation, not to say that you and I, when we don't have dreams, God is drawn away from us. He's not with us anymore. But just pay attention to the way kings related to dreams and prophets. Because in 1 Kings 3, we're going to see David's son, Solomon. He ends up having a, you guessed it, a dream. Hey, real quick, don't forget to head to AboveReproachMinistry.com to check out all of our free resources. All of our Bible study courses, devotional studies, Bible study workshops, Bible study worksheets, all of my sermon notes, and more. And while you're there, grab a copy of my book, Fruitful, or snag some church merch. You can also find all these links in the video description below. I'm also very excited to announce Above Reproach Ministry Discussion Groups, or ARM Discussion Groups for short. Head to the website if you'd like to see what groups are available near you, or if you'd like to start one in your area, feel free to email me. The first season of video teachings have been compiled into a group study for you and other believers to dive into together. And in the months to come, I hope to have all nine seasons of these video teachings compiled into group studies for y'all to dive into together. We hope this encourages you to meet and grow with other believers to dive into the scriptures as the body of Christ. Well, that is all I have for you. Let's jump back into the message. First Kings 3, starting in verse 1, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You're not supposed to see that as a good thing. That's supposed to make you suspicious of Solomon's intentions and actions and what he's doing and going, hmm, it doesn't seem like Solomon is starting off his reign on the right foot by making an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and marrying his daughter. Well, he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall. 
I think this actually notes in the order of Solomon's mind what is most important. His house, then the house of God, then the wall. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. I'll get into this much deeper when we do the Bible study walkthroughs throughout the next few weeks. Uh, Solomon loved the Lord, though, walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. There's two mentions of the high places, and the connotation these statements have is that uh, it's not a positive thing. However, they're offering sacrifices at the high places. However, he made offerings at the high places, right? You're not supposed, you're supposed to shrug at this and go, uh. and the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there for that was the great high place. High places in pagan religion and the way that they would worship and sacrifice sacred territory. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Woof! At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. So that's the back context, the background. And God said, ask what I shall give you. Can you imagine God showing up to you in a dream and just being like, what do you want? No greetings? Solomon said, you've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, in uprightness of heart toward you. And I don't need to read the rest of this because there's so many other dreams to get to, but you guys know the story. Solomon's going to ask for wisdom to govern the people of God. He goes, I'm just a child. I'm an infant in my thinking. I don't have a mind to understand and, and discern and govern your people. I want wisdom to be the best king to help and guide and rule your people. God's going to honor him for that. What you're going to see is that God meets Solomon in his own deficiency, in his own inadequacy and weakness and doubts. And God is going to give Solomon an opportunity to choose what he believes is good. Another observation about this dream that he has is that God meets Solomon at the great high place rather than in Jerusalem where the Ark of the Covenant is. Just think about that. And the next thing Solomon does after this story is he actually goes to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice to God. So this dream marks a transitional point in Solomon's life. Solomon has ascended the throne. Solomon has is now reigning in place of his father, David. But there's also somewhat of a minor crisis going on, okay? The minor crisis is Solomon is so keenly aware of his own deficiency. He lacks wisdom and understanding, and he's asking God to give it. And God actually knows that's a cry of Solomon's heart. And so God meets Solomon in this moment of transition and crisis and gives what? Wisdom, encouragement. He gives warning and direction if you read the rest of the dream and how it all plays out. And I encourage you to do so. But we're trying to cover more ground today. But know this, that yes, this does mark a transition in Solomon's life, in his reign, um, and, and what he's going to do, how he's going to do things is now going to be with the wisdom of the Almighty. Okay. I know we're going to jump to King Nebi's dream and, and Daniel's dream. Don't get caught up in eschatology. Don't be asking me what's happening. That, 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 this is not the point of this study for now. Eschatology will come later. But King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He's the king of Babylon. And um, Daniel lives in Babylon with his three buddies. We know them by their uh, Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in the second year, Nebuchadnezzar has a troubling dream. Oof, very troubled. He freaks out, and I'm going to go in depth 
in this passage once again in weeks to come. Just trying to get you excited to stay tuned for those videos. And uh, he essentially goes, I had a t- that dream freaked me out. He calls all his wise men together, his enchanters, his magicians. He goes, tell me what it means. Uh, actually, hold on. I retract that. Tell me what I dreamed and then tell me what it means. No one could do it. So he goes, okay, I'm going to kill everyone. I'm going to kill all the magicians, all the enchanters, all the wise men, all your families. I'm just going to kill them all. The decree goes out. Daniel catches wind of this, finds out. And Daniel goes, if you give me some time, I could actually pray that God would give me interpretation. Daniel goes to his house. He makes the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions. Those are their Hebrew names. And he told them, let's seek God for mercy from um, concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his companions wouldn't be destroyed. And guess what? The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Daniel praises God, blesses him. God, you change times. You reveal dark things. Thank you. Like Not like evil things, things that are in the shadows that aren't known. Mysteries, right? Then Daniel hastily goes to the king of Babylon and goes, got your interpretation, boy. Sit down. I mean, <laughs> I got the dream. Uh, and the king goes, so can you tell me the interpretation then? And Daniel goes, God can. I'm just a vessel. I know what was happening though. Your dreams and the visions of your head as you lay in bed, you were wondering what's going to happen after this. So before the dream even came on, King Nebi's already sitting in bed, tormented seemingly by the thought of not knowing what's going to happen. The uncertainty. What's going to be after this? He's having an existential crisis, King Nebuchadnezzar is, laying in bed. Thoughts of what would be, and, and God revealed mysteries of what is to be. In other words, the dream is an answer to King Nebuchadnezzar's concerns and fears and anxieties and worries and, and all the uncertainty that revolves around the future. He's spiraling out of control and he falls asleep and God answers those by giving him a vision our dream, rather. Daniel actually, do you know how God reveals the mystery to Daniel? I skipped over it. But the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And we already established what a vision of the night is, a dream. So this is fascinating to me. Daniel has a dream to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Why is God doing this? I don't know. (laughs) Why is God choosing to make, almost make this so complicated? Like just, if you're going to do something wonderful, just have Daniel have this wonderful dream and go tell Nebuchadnezzar. Instead of King Nebuchadnezzar stressing out, falling asleep, having a stress dream, God reveals the future. I don't know what it means. And then King Nebuchadnezzar goes, I'm going to kill everyone. I'm so angry. And then Daniel goes, "Uh, can I have a shot? And then he prays and God goes, here's a dream about interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And then Daniel goes, I, I got the interpretation. Why, why all of these different confusing runarounds, right? Because God is doing something very strategic here. He's revealing his glory to Nebuchadnezzar and all the people. He's promoting Daniel in the sight of the people. He's protecting his own people, his faithful. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God is strengthening Daniel's faith. 
in relationship with God. God is bringing glory to himself and leading Daniel to worship and bless his name. God is moving Daniel to pray and seek him for an answer. Um, God is giving end times understanding of his plan and how Babylon fits into it to both Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. And God is answering Nebuchadnezzar's questions and concerns. And God is doing all of that with just this one dream he gives to Nebuchadnezzar. So let's think about the context here. King Nebuchadnezzar is having an existential crisis in bed. God gives an answer to his concerns and fears through a a crazy dream, which we're not going to go through today, but you can read it. It has all these metaphorical images of empires, and first it'll be Babylon, then it'll be the Greco, um, not the Greco-Roman, it'll be the Medo-Persian Empire, and then Greece, and Alexander the Great will take over, and, and then we'll have the Roman Empire, and he's seeing all these different, this this image of like a, a big old body made of different body parts, and clay, and iron, and go read it yourself. But essentially, Daniel interprets the dream. Once again, we see symbolism, we see images and objects represent deeper ideas, in this sense, empires, nations, and kings. And then, in this dream, God is giving a warning to King Nebuchadnezzar, as well as future insight. Now, in Daniel's dream, when God answers the cry of Daniel to reveal what da- what King Nebuchadnezzar dreamed, God gives Daniel a dream in the midst of his own crisis. Because guess what? Daniel's going, God, if you don't tell us what it means, if you don't tell us what this means, then we're all going to die. It's kind of like an Esther situation where the king has made a decree in haste, very impulsive. And Daniel's going, God, if you don't answer, if you don't reveal the mystery, we're all dead. All us wise men, us faithful remnant, we're dead. And in the middle of that crisis, God answers. And what does God give Daniel? He gives Daniel wisdom, encouragement, and both present insight into what's happening as well as future insight into the future empires that will be. I'm going to take you to another dream King Nebuchadnezzar has. It's going to be in Daniel 4. Daniel 4. Now again, in in coming weeks and months and years, we will be tackling these passages head on, diving deep into eschatology. It's not the purpose of today's message. We're looking at dreams. Daniel 4. uh, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is recalling something that happened to him. right? And he's writing to all the people of his empire. And he's letting everyone know what happened. Um, in the beginning of this chapter. And he goes, I was at ease in my house, prospering, and I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. And he calls Daniel. Daniel comes in. And Daniel goes, hmm. Okay. Because King Nebuchadnezzar's dream was this. A tree was in the midst of the earth. Right here. Its height was great. It's huge, massive. The tree grew and became strong. Its top reached to heaven. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit was abundant. And in it was food for everyone. The beasts of the field found shade. The birds of the heavens lived in its branches. All the flesh, all flesh was fed from it. What you're going to see is that the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field represent the nations. Uh, The branches represent the security and the provision and the protection of Babylon as an empire, King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. 
the tree itself represents King Nebuchadnezzar's empire of Babylon. Okay, Daniel's going to explain that and say, look, um, God has proclaimed that, well, it's down here. Because King Nebuchadnezzar is going to go, and then I saw a holy one say, chop it down. And, and all of a sudden, someone said, turn him into a beast in the grass of the earth. His mind was changed, and he's going, I don't know what it means. And Daniel goes, okay, um, the tree you saw, that is you. You've gotten big. You've gotten strong, huh? This is for us, too. Be careful how big you let yourself get. Be careful how great you let yourself become in your own mind. Careful not to get inflated like King Nebuchadnezzar because God is going to chop him down and humble him. He's going to be turned into an animal, spend who knows how long out in the wilderness functioning like an animal. And then he'll have his mind restored and come back and come to himself and reign again and he'll be humbled and go, God is God. He's over the whole, the world, all the cosmos. It's his. King Nebuchadnezzar won't realize that until He's humbled himself. And Daniel goes, you're going to be chopped down. And then Daniel goes, besides all of that, I encourage you. Here's my counsel. Break up. Stop sinning. Practice righteousness. Show mercy to the oppressed. In other words, he's saying you have a chance to show mercy, justice, compassion, and actually be a righteous king in the sight of God. Like rule righteously. Do what God says. Practice righteousness. Stop sinning. And King Nebuchadnezzar does not do that. And this ends up coming upon him. So the question becomes, what was the purpose of this dream? To warn King Nebuchadnezzar. To humble him. Just like Job 33 says. That God gives a dream to, to warn a man. To terrify him. To do good when he's awake. It's supposed to move King Nebuchadnezzar to fear the Lord and recognize God is over all the kingdoms, right? And what you're going to see is that King Nebuchadnezzar does not respond well to Daniel's counsel. He stays prideful. So in the middle of this crisis he's having, which seems to be another existential crisis of like, well, his own pride being his downfall and things seem to be uh, crumbling around him and he's Things are about to transition too. King Nebuchadnezzar is about to be turned into an animal, which is going to mark a new season of King Nebuchadnezzar's life for a period of time, right? So, I want you to be thinking about that, that we see both crisis and transition here for King Nebuchadnezzar in this dream. And why does God give it? To give warning, um, to give direction and instruction, and to do right. And now let's, we could go to Daniel 7, um, the whole lion and bear, with, which represents, you know, the different nations, which is a very similar dream to what King Nebuchadnezzar has. But I'm just going to jump New Testament because I don't think that will be necessarily useful. It's a long passage. It's long. And these are going to be the last few passages we look at, um, at least when it comes to the New Testament. Uh, Matthew 1.20. We have Joseph kind of in his own crisis once again. He found out Mary is pregnant. Apparently the Spirit of God gave her a baby. He ain't buying it. And he's trying to figure out how to put her away quietly. He's not trying to cause an uproar. He's not trying to make a big old problem. He doesn't want her to be stoned and cast out. He just wants this thing to be settled quietly. 
And verse 20 says, As he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. So God is delivering a message through a dream in a time of, once again, crisis. Saying, Joseph, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. So what does God give? Instruction, encouragement. Don't fear. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. God also gives present insight into the situation. He opens the spiritual eyes of Joseph to know that, yes, the Spirit of God has indeed brought this baby into her womb. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. So there's two things Joseph is called to do through this dream. There's instruction and direction, command. Take Mary as your wife. Don't be afraid of the public shame and the spectacle. And also name him Jesus. Because he's going to save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did what the Lord commanded. He took his wife and then he ended up calling the son Jesus. So this dream is very important because it marks a transition in both Mary and Joseph's life as it relates to having Jesus and and raising Jesus. And now the son of God is in their care. And under their protection. So Joseph, uh, what does God give through this dream to Joseph? Well, he meets him in a time of crisis and it marks a time of transition. Joseph, you're going from uh, being engaged to Mary to now you and her are about to take care of the Son of God. This marks a transitional point in Joseph's life. And God is giving wisdom on how to do it, direction on what to do, and also encouragement. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Um, Let's go to Matthew 2. The wise men see Jesus, right? But before they get to Jesus, who do they stop and see? Well, they see King Herod, who is viewed as the god of that time. He's the king. And um, uh, where is it? The days of Herod the king. Wise men come to him, scroll down, they see Jesus. And they love it. They worship him. They offer him gifts. In verse 12, being warned in a dream, don't return to Herod. They went to their own country by another way. So this is a this is a quick one, but what does God give the wise men through a dream, direction, warning, and instruction? Now you go, well, in this moment, there's no moment of crisis. It's actually a, a time of joy and celebration. And like, this is super cool. There's no crisis. Is it a transition? Not necessarily. I don't know how to make, I don't know. I don't want to force that idea into the text and go, well, they're transitioning from having seen him to going back home with the knowledge, possibly. But this might be the exception. This might be the exception. Matthew 2, this this quick blip of they had a dream, don't return. We don't know anything beyond that. We move on to Pilate's wife. She has a dream in Matthew 27, 19. And Jesus is sitting there being examined by Pilate. Oof. And he knows Jesus is only here on trial because the the religious leaders are jealous. And while he's sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate is probably considering these things and what will cause the least chaos and what will make the people happy. His wife comes to him and goes, hey, or sends word to him and goes, don't have anything to do with that righteous man. Like, wipe your hands clean, move on, do nothing with him. 
because I've suffered much today in a dream because of him. What does that mean? I don't know. How does she know that the dream means don't mess with Jesus? How does she conclude that? We don't know. What we do know is that God is getting a point across and it's on Pilate. It's on Pilate to either heed the voice of his wife and consider what she's dreamed and actually weigh it and go, is there legitimacy to what you're saying or not? And he doesn't consider it. He does, in a sense, wipe his hands clean and goes, you crucify him. But he's not really clean of it, is he? He's not. So, there's more of a warning in this dream. And Pilate's wife and Pilate, Pilate less than Pilate's wife, but his wife seems to really be distressed. And Pilate is also very distressed on what to do with Jesus. You might say a lesser moment of crisis, right? The last dream we'll examine is Acts 16.9. Peter, uh, Paul, is having a hard time ministering. You'd think preaching the gospel and planting churches would be easier, but he's gone through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, and he's being forbidden by the Spirit to go in Asia. And so, oh, that's fine, that's fine. Okay, God, no big deal. When they come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus said, nope. And Paul's going, okay, okay. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and they stayed there for the night, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, which we know a vision in the night is a dream. And in Paul's dream, he sees a man of Macedonia. How he knows he's from Macedonia? Was there a sign next to him that says, Macedonia. Did he have a name tag that said, I'm from Macedonia? Don't know. But a man of Macedonia, maybe just the way he looked, he knew, ah, Macedonian man. But he was standing saying, come, come to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul saw the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia. Why? Why would you make a decision based off a dream that, well, they concluded God has called us to preach the gospel to Macedonia. And there's some questions. There's a, there's a little bit of crisis going on for Paul. He tries to go into Bithynia. No. Tries to go into Asia. Spirit of God goes, no. So he's having a little crisis. God, where do you want us? Where are we supposed to go? We're supposed to be preaching. We have, we have no sense of direction. We're trying and you're saying no. And then in a dream, God encourages. God gives direction. God gives instruction through a man from Macedonia going, help. Paul goes, oh. And apparently they conclude God's calling us to preach the gospel in Macedonia. So something to consider, how did they conclude that? Was it, a, was it like he had the dream, he's like, let's go. Did they pray about it? It says immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, but what does immediately really mean? Like in the morning, they're like, you know what? Let's get going. Along the way, we'll figure out. Or was it like the dream happened? He woke up and went, guys, pack the bags. Let's go. Either way, there's a concluding on the part of Paul. And this is what we'll do when we'll get to interpreting dreams, um, which for some reason I don't have. Um, let's see if I can pull it up here. Hmm, where are my notes for that? Huh, I just don't 
have those notes anymore. No, I do. Okay. Okay. Those are all the dreams throughout scripture besides Daniel 7, which he sees the beasts and he sees the different animals and all that stuff. Okay. The idea behind going through all these and doing a flyby is to say in every situation, probably apart from the wise men, which maybe we could figure something out. Dreams come in times of crisis and times of transition for people. It's just an observation. It's something to consider as we weigh these things and go, Lord, am I having a dream? Am I in a, and is this marking a, a time of transition for me and my family or the ministry or job or, or our life? Am I in a time of crisis? It seems as though God meets people in times of crisis often throughout scripture. A dream is a good way to really provide that encouragement and direction that they're praying and asking for. So, I mean, you can go down the line, and we did. Abram, Abimelech, Jacob, Joseph, Baker, Cupbearer, Pharaoh, Gideon, Saul, Solomon, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar again, Joseph, Mary's husband, Joseph, Mary's husband again, which I didn't get to. Um, Sorry, I skipped that real quick. Another dream Joseph has um, in Matthew chapter 2, right after the wise men dip, is... An angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and goes, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So that marks a new season of life for them. They're going to live in Egypt for a while. That's a transition. They're escaping Herod. God provides direction, instruction, encouragement, um, a warning, insight into the future, what Herod will do. And God appears in a dream to Joseph to warn and say, Run to Egypt. And of course, prophecy will be fulfilled. And then in a dream... God will appear again and say, Hey, Joseph, enough time has passed. You can go back to Israel. Herod's dead. Herod's dead. And um, in those moments of crisis, will Herod find us? Are we going to die? Herod's looking to kill all the kids under two in, in Bethlehem. As that's all transpiring and Joseph's probably doesn't even know about that happening in the background, God intervenes and comes in and goes, Hey, I'm going to tell you something you don't know so you can leave and then come back when I tell you. And then God appears in a dream, which again, direction, marking transition. Both times, Joseph receives a dream to go to Egypt to come back. It does mark that transition of a season of life for them. So, what we're going to do is we've done that. There's a bunch of different observations I want to make about dreams on Monday. Things like, what do we see when it comes to interpretations? What do we see when it comes to people interpreting and how people interpret and who interprets? What do we see about taking the right action and concluding? Uh, what do we see about, you know, any, any warnings I should be aware of and, and things to consider when it comes to counterfeit dreams and, and things that aren't from God? That will be Monday. But I, I, I'm sure this time around I've done a much better job of communicating what Scripture says about dreams uh, when it comes to this whole purpose, timing, people, what God is doing. And this all relates to hearing God's voice. Remember, because I believe God is still speaking today at times, not the normative, not the primary way, but at times through dreams. And part of our way of recognizing and discerning and even interpreting or letting someone else interpret is to weigh all of these things and have a right biblical understanding about dreams when they occur, what God is doing, what the person is kind of going, uh, dealing with, all that stuff as we consider for our own lives 
when we think God is speaking to us in dreams. So Monday, the next session, um, you have a lot to look forward to. I'll say that when it comes to warnings and, and cautions and also steps and not a blueprint to interpreting, but like wisdom principles we can glean from scripture when it comes to like discerning a dream. All right. Hey, I just want to thank you for all your support and prayers that make this ministry possible and help us to accomplish our mission. Your support makes it possible for us to create all the free resources we have available for anyone around the world. Our mission is to teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. So be sure to visit abovereproachministry.com for all these free resources and to support this ministry. And if you're a new believer, be sure to check out the new believer section on the homepage of our website and grab a copy of my book, Fruitful, while you're there. God bless you guys, and as always, keep moving towards Jesus.